Today we end our series on Jacob by looking at something that's sort of an epilogue to our story. Um, and it is exactly the kind of, how do I put this? It is exactly the kind of ending the Bible tends to end on, especially in the Old Testament. See, we tend to think on Bible stories as having like an ending that's like, oh, and so they all lived happier ever after, right? Uh, that's, how, that's how we tell the stories to kids, I would say. But the truth is, is when you get into the Bible, those stories don't usually play out like this. For example, you might be able to ask uh, your kid or a kid, hey, tell me the story of Noah's Ark. And usually it'll end somewhere on, and the ark landed on the mountain and the dove went out the end. Very few of them end with, and Noah planted a vineyard and got wasted. But that's how the Bible ends. That's, that's, how, that's how the story ends. Like, this is not... I didn't write the book, people, okay? The, the reason I say this... And by the way, this is the only time... I'm going to be, be honest as we get into this, guys. The subject for today it involves a very uh, touchy and dark subject matter. And so I make a joke right now up at front to let you know that I will not be making a bunch of jokes like that and make light of that as we go through this passage because I want to be uh, respectful of the text and be absolutely serious. But understand this idea is today's story fits more into that layout, okay? We have a story, we have, like tri- we have great triumph, and then it ends on this note of, and everything really wasn't as good as it all seemed last week. That's how the story tends to go. Uh, if you guys have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 34. We're going to be in 34 and the tail end of 35 today. And because we're dealing with a little bit of a bigger passage, what you're going to notice is I do that thing where I skip around a little bit in the passages and focus on key points. Um, So we begin with this story just to give you a little background in in our story thus far. We've been looking at the life of a guy named Jacob. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. And Jacob is born uh, a twin, uh, the younger of two twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau is a big, manly, hairy man. His name uh, he, he hunts and does all the things that we think of a manly, masculine person doing. And Jacob's name means heel grabber, basically. He's a sneaky kid. He's the sneaky younger brother in the, in the story. And what basically happens is, on two different occasions, Jacob steals both his birthright and a blessing that was meant for his older brother Esau. And this leads his brother Esau to say, I'm going to kill him if I find him. And he's not kidding around when he says that. So Jacob travels to the land of his forefathers where he finds, uh, where he gets into a number of situations. Uh, Basically, at the beginning of his story, God appears to him. And he says, I'm I'm the God of your your grandfather Abraham and your father Isaac, and I'm going to bring you back here. And he says, if you will do that, he's like, I will worship you. I will build an altar and I will do all and I will serve you. And so he goes off into the land that, uh, the land of his ancestors, Padan Aram, and there he meets a person who is just as sneaky as him. His, uh, the man who will become his father-in-law, Laban. And Laban is a sneaky guy. He tricks Jacob into, Jacob has one daughter, uh, Rachel, who he instantly falls in love with. She's beautiful and everything he wants. And he tricks him to where instead he first marries his daughter Leah, who Jacob is not as fond of. He's tricked. I mean, like I said, let's give Jacob a little credit here. If you were tricked into marrying someone other than the person you thought you were marrying, you would probably be angry about the situation too, right? So we can sympathize with him. 
So that happens, and then God calls him to leave eventually. He, has, he, marries, uh, he marries Leah, then Rachel. They have a whole bunch of kids and one daughter who's going to be the subject of today. And then eventually God calls him away. And as uh, Jacob is returning to uh, his, um, the place that he is originally from, the land of Canaan, uh, Esau, his brother, comes out to meet him. And we expect it to be this tense uh, confrontation. But instead... Esau, to Jacob's surprise, falls on him, hugs him and kisses him, and it's as though all was forgiven. And so the brothers reconcile, and then they part ways. And this is where we pick up today. Uh, Basically, um, Jacob has settled with his family uh, just outside of the land of Canaan. Uh, Just a note on that, this was not a place that was known, this was not an area that you had thought of as an as a Christian or Jewish nation, this was a godless nation filled uh, with pagan cultures that did a lot of horrendous things. And so we read at the beginning of this story. Uh, Jacob's story is nearly over, but right at the end it takes a turn for the worse. Uh, verse 1 says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had bore to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. Now, some of this gets lost in translation. But when it says she went out to see the women of the land, that's a sign that the authors would have acknowledged as being she went somewhere she probably shouldn't have been. Okay? The women of the land aren't good. This isn't like, oh, she went out to the well where some of the people were or anything like that. This is her going out to the party she knew her parents should have told her not to go to. It's a sign that something bad is about to happen. And so what we find here... Uh, this, this idea of going out uh, to where the women of the land are. Um, generally speaking, uh, this is often found in this kind of terminology would be used to describe um, men going out to see prostitutes and things like that. So it's, this is, she's not going out to the right place. Okay. Um, that said, Dinah is not responsible for, all that hap- for what happens next, but Dinah... Dinah and her parents should have said, avoid that place. So she went where she shouldn't have been. It's not her fault what happens, but that said, wisdom teaches us to avoid certain situations, right? We go on. Verse 2, verse two we, it says, And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her, and he lay with her, and he humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Okay. I don't think I have to push too far for you to understand what the implications of he seized her and he lay with her meant. Okay? This is exactly the ugliness of a situation that the Bible is portraying here. It does not, and Shechem is a real scumbag. He lives as royalty in the land, being the favored son of his father, Hamor, He sees Dinah. He forces himself on her. However, afterwards, what we read is this strange story that he actually is infatuated with her afterwards. And so he tells his father to go strike a deal with her father so that he can marry her. Now, at this point, it's worth noting something. Israelite law had a simple solution for this. So when we hear something like this is... This is something I teach us often here, which is just because the Bible tells you what happened, it's not saying this is a good thing. Uh, As a matter of fact, one of the great guides for that is God's law, which tells us it reveals God's character, his nature, and how he wants the world to work. Um, So 
the, the punishment for a crime like this in Israel would have been the death sentence. Uh, you may not be aware of this, but in Israel, the punishment for rape was the death penalty. Exodus chapter 22, verse 25 through 27 reads, but if, in, but if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man sees her and lies with her, and then, uh, and then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. Because he met her in the open country, and through, and through the betrothed young woman cried, though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. Guys, I want you to understand this, and I don't want you to take this lightly. The Bible said biblical law is based on restitution, okay? You steal something, you pay it back. In the case of something grotesque like this, the sentence is you forfeit and pay with your life. That's what the Bible, that's how, that's how the law of Israel worked. And frankly, I read things like this and I go, we should be thinking more like that. I'm not even, I, I, don't, I make no apologies for that. Um, this is God's chosen punishment and it is good and just. We could learn something from it. So we see this story. We see Dinah defiled in this instance. And then the next response we see is we see Jacob's callous response to it. Verses five, verse 5 through 7, it says, Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with the livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. That means he kept silent. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak to him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field, and as soon as they heard it, and the men were indignant and very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. Okay, word spreads of what has happened here and the two reactions we see here. First are Jacob, and he's silent. The word held his peace. Guys, there's a time the Bible says to hold, there's a time for peace, but this ain't that time. Then we see Dinah's brothers, Jacob's sons, and they are furious about this. Uh, this is right. It is good to be angry about the things that God gets angry about. And basically, it's, we know something's big here because the author basically breaks the fourth wall around verse 7. They, they basically address the audience directly. He explains the situation, and then he says in verse 7, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Guys, this is the first time that Israel is referenced as a people in the, in the Bible rather than as a person. And what sticks out like a sore thumb here is how little Jacob seems to care about his daughter. This may have been alluded to at the outset when Dinah is introduced as Dinah, the daughter of Leah. In other words, the daughter of the wife he didn't want. Pointing out that she was somehow, he somehow viewed her as second nature. And then likewise, his silence here is telling. Hamor shows up and tries to spin the story. Basically, Hamor... uh, Shows up, he tries to spin the story as, hey, these two crazy kids are in love. But Jacob knows better, and yet he says nothing. His response to Hamor should have been, hey, look, here's the offer I'll make you. Give me my daughter back, because she was still with them, and say goodbye to your son. But he doesn't. But his brothers, have, uh, his brothers are angry. Rightly so. And so they have a plan to get back at him. Verse 8. Dinah's brothers are not as, uh, so verse 8 through 10, we see Dinah's brothers are not as agreeable as their father. 
Hamor tries to strike a deal with Jacob. He says, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to, me, to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give us your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade and get property in it. See, the Israelites hearing this would know that this was a no-go. The book of uh, Genesis was originally written to the Israelites coming out of Egyptian slavery, entering this promised land, the land of Canaan. And basically, Hebrew people, Hebrew uh, children were for, forbidden from marrying non-Jewish people. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7 lays it out for this. It says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So keep in mind, why did the, why did the Bible tell us not to do that? Is it because he didn't like the other people? He says, oh no, those, that, the, uh, the, those Canaanites are just naturally gross? No. The idea is he do, God doesn't want them to serve their gods. The issue is faith. They're to marry within the faith. Um, so, so, the, so the original audience would know that this deal that Haman wants to strike with them was a bad deal. He should have never gone near it. And so, Dinah's brothers are fuming, but they play it cool in this situation. Verse 13. It says, The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our daughter to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition we will agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters for ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. So that's the deal they say with them. They say, look, if you want to do, make this deal, you've got to become like we are. Every male in your, in your city has to be circumcised. Um, that's their idea. That's how they do this. Now, the fact that the Bible tells us they answered deceitfully lets us know they're up to something. This is not just like a friendly conversation here. They're planning and scheming some things. So Hamor and Shechem agree to the terms. And so they go and they try to convince all the males in the city that this is a good idea, which trying to convince all of them to do this would probably be something that would need some, some convincing. So they mention nothing about the marriage, only what it benefits to them. Verse 23, it says, they say, Will not their livestock, their property, their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and we'll dwell with them. In other words, guys, this is a financially good thing for us. Just go through with this and we'll end up with everything that we've got. We're going to become rich through this endeavor. So the men of the city uh, obey and do so. But this was all part of the brothers' big payback scheme. So we read verse 25. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. So, all along, these brothers had a plan, a payback plan. They played cool so that they could deceive them, the men of the city, and then make them weak and then crush them. What's important to understand here, guys, however, is that this is not justice. This was not the right response. Justice would have said that Shechem should pay for his crime. 
They would have been right for rounding up a posse to come bring Shechem to justice and rescuing their sister. However, had Hamor and the people and had Hamor and the people of the city refused to let her go, then maybe they would have been right in going to bat- then they would have been right in going to battle with them. But this idea that the entire city is punished for Shechem's actions is not uh, is not the biblical idea of justice. We see that the punishment doesn't fit the crime. We also see that the brothers are not content with just killing all the males in the city as well. Verse 27, it says, The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Do you see what just happened? The plunder, they plundered the city, even capturing the women and children. In other words, they had become the very thing they hated. They had done likewise. Point is, guys, injustice will never lead to justice. A disproportionate wrath will not solve a problem, as we see when Jacob catches, as Jacob catches word of what happened. So they think, oh, this is just going to work over great for this. But they're wrong. Jacob says to him, verse 30, he says, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought terrible trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? So here again, we see Jacob's callous heart in play. He is unconcerned about his daughter's well-being and only concerned about himself and how he will be perceived by the surrounding peoples. He says, this isn't going to go well for me. No mention of his daughter or anything here. Jacob's sons, specifically Simeon and Levi, who are Dinah's uh, whole brothers, or full-blood brothers, are right in their response here. They say, "Should, should should he be allowed to treat our sister like a prostitute? In truth, that's what Jacob was doing there. Jacob was tried looking at his daughter, and basically he was willing to sell her in order to profit himself. At this point, where are we at in the story? We see the house absolutely the house of Jacob absolutely in shambles. See, Dinah's been defiled, her brothers have murdered and kidnapped people. The entire family is now in danger, and Jacob has sat around failing to be the head of his household. Everyone is at each other's throats. Can anything, leaving the author to ask the question, can anything be done to actually restore this divided family? And there is. And as we get to chapter 35, we see the solution. It's at this point in our story where God speaks. Chapter 35, starting in verse 1, it says... God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So what's God doing here? 
He's calling Jacob and his family to return to the place where Jacob first met the Lord. That's where God first appeared to Jacob, a place that was formerly called Luz, and then he renamed it Bethel, meaning house of God. In effect, this is him calling Jacob to repent and recommit his life to him. He's saying, this is the situation. You guys have gone a long way from where you were. Return from where you started. Jacob realizes this, so he tells the people with him to clean up their act and to throw away the foreign gods amongst them. Uh, Interesting, prior to, we're not really told that there was a bunch of foreign gods. Where did these foreign gods come from? Well, most likely when they plundered the city, they took their idols with them. And as a result, what happened? They just started worshiping the gods of the Canaanites in the process. Or the, the, and so, this is what we see. As they return to the place where God first revealed himself to Jacob, we see that they are protected. So remember, that was Jacob's fear. They're going to crush us. Because they are going to hear what you did, and my family's small, the other nations are going to come out, and they're going to fight us, and they're going to crush us. This is what we read, Genesis chapter 35, verse 5 through 7. It says, And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. So once again, Jacob builds a memorial to God's mercy and faithfulness. That's what an altar is. And once more, God speaks with Jacob. The repetition of referring to the old... uh, uh, So there's a couple things in here. One... Uh, there's a repetition of things. Jacob is basically retracing his steps at this point. He's back to the place he started. So much that there's an interesting thing there. It says, he went to Luz, that is Bethel. Now, Jacob had already changed the name of this place to Bethel, but what's the significance of calling it Luz again? Well, he's back to his old, he's back to his old behavior. He, everything, it's as though he's forgotten all that God had taught him in this 20 years when he was away. And so... We, the, the idea of the name that was changed going back parallels Jacob in this story. And then we see that God appeared to Jacob again, verse 9, when he came to Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob. Or, I'm sorry, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and to Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give to the offspring after you. So God reminds Jacob of who he really is. He said, now God has already changed his name. God already said to him, look, you're not Jacob anymore. You're Israel. What's the point in this? He's forgotten who he really was. He started to act more like Jacob and less like Israel in this, in this position. God is saying that to him. You are Israel. Stop acting like Jacob. Stop acting like you're still the man who you were before I've changed you. Now, having J- reminded Jacob of this, God reaffirms his promises, his covenant agreement with him. In spite of all that has tr- transpired, the Lord will still be with him and his family and will still bless them. 
promising kings to come from their lineage. So that's the story. What does it mean for you and me? Well, what sense are we to make of this story? It's a weird one. I'll be honest with you guys. As I was planning this, I was like, this is a weird story to end the series on. But this is, where the, this is, the, this is what the Bible teaches. And God's word is good and pure. What stands out here, first off, is that every character in this story kind of functions in a moral gray area. Um, much like real life, there's not necessarily... It, it, the people aren't exactly kind of black and white characters. They're not just all good, all bad, anything like that. So, for example, uh, Dinah, Dinah's unwise decision to go to the women of the city put her in a dangerous position. Shechem, what Shechem does is absolutely inexcusable. However... We have to note that he does that the Bible includes the fact that he does try to sort of make right in this. However wrong-headed and stupid it is, he does try to somehow do something to make right on this. Uh, Dinah's brothers rightfully go to punish a criminal for his crimes, but they go beyond what justice would demand, killing innocent people and taking women and children captive in the process. And likewise, Jacob's inactivity, while it may protect his family from war, is cowardly, and it neglects to fight for his only daughter. See, what this story illustrates is that what happens when people try to solve their problems without reference to God and to his word. When people start to act as a law unto themselves, as a guide unto themselves, this is the kind of situation you get. Society devolves into chaos. That's the idea here. So, what, we see, uh, what do we see as a result of all this? People saying, I'm going to follow my own instincts. I'm going to do, I'm not going to pay attention to what the Lord has said. We see escalation. We see that hanging out with the wrong crowd leads to a war and massive deaths. Why? Because no one stops to ask the question, to inquire what God requires in any given situation. This is a cautionary tale for the Israelites. And it's a cautionary tale for you and me as well. In other words, God is saying, do not turn your back on him and his law, his word, or society itself will crumble. All that we built will come apart. See, in the end, the situation is only rectified by God himself intervening. He calls Jacob back to him, making him return to the point where he first believed. And there God reaffirms the promises he had given him. You are no longer Jacob. You are Israel. Don't forget it. This was true to the nation of Israel as it was to Jacob the man. And it's true to you as well. The same is true of us. You are not what you once were. You are no longer enslaved to sin which once defined you. Rather, as the Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 6 verse 17. He says, but thanks be to God. To you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, having been set free from sin, becoming slaves of righteousness. We are not bound to our selfishness, we are, but rather we are bound to Christ. And so the result is that we follow and we obey him. Do you catch what Paul's getting at here? You gotta serve something. It'll either be sin or se- and selfishness or Christ and righteousness. There's no neutral ground. You have to make a choice. But here's the good news. Here's the big idea for this week, guys. God is with us in our troubles. 
He would, even in all this situation, no matter how bad it got, he had not forgotten his promise to Jacob and his family. And he was faithful to actually call him back. And as Jacob repents and turns away and gets rid of the, the idols and returns to the Lord, what we find is that God welcomes him back in. He says here, let us arise, chapter 35, verse 3, he says, let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. God is with us in our distress. The word Bethel here means house of God, as I said. It means even when your life has fallen into disarray, the Father assures you that he has never left you and he invites you to come back home. That's what's happening here. And, but what is home, coming back to the Lord when we've fallen short, when we've turned away from him, what does that actually look like? Well, two things that we see here. Two actions. Repentance and recommitment. We see repentance in that the idols, the symbol of their lack of faith, is buried and left behind. Then we see recommitment in the construction of the altar, a meeting place between God and man. Guys, you need to hear this. God has never left you, even in your worst troubles. He has been with you in them. And if you trust in him and follow his word, he will see you through them. See, he answers us in the day of our distress. That's what we need to remember. We need to remember the fact that while the people tend to act on these weird moral gray areas, God is black and white. God is straightforward. He tells us how to follow him. He calls us to listen to him, to obey him. And when we do, honestly, guys, the things that we think of as confusing the life become more simple. Because God gives us his word, he gives us his spirit, he gives us his presence. He goes out with us. So wherever you're at this week, if you feel like God has left you, if you feel like you've gone so far that you can't turn back, guys, take comfort from this message. God has been with you all along. He is the God who has been with you in, in your distress, wherever you have gone. And as we, can, as we return to him, he embraces us as a father to a son. He loves us. Where Jacob failed... Christ succeeded. He fights on our behalf. That's what Israel means. God fights. And so we are reminded of the fact that no matter what comes our way, he goes with us, he goes out to fight for us, and if we trust in him, he will see us through it. To all that I say, praise be to God. Bow your heads, let's pray. Father God, you are faithful when we are faithless. Lord, we look at the story and hear about horrible. It's horrible. But when we look at the situation, if we're honest about ourselves, what we find is that no one is purely innocent. None of us have done rightly all the time. All of us have sins. All of us have made have done things wrong. But God, you are the you are the God who goes with. You welcome, us, you welcome us back into your home. 
God, make us a people who are willing to repent and recommit. Make us a people who trust in you, who look to your word for guidance and direction, and trust in your power to protect us. Lord, we know that we can do these things because you have shown yourself to be faithful, and you will continue to do so. Be honored as we continue in worship, as we take the Lord's Supper. Help us to remember that. This is the price that was paid to bring us back to God. We thank you and we praise you. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.